Uh, sentencing coming down for Tyler Flack uh, yesterday, 25 years to life. As a house from the judge in the case rejecting a uh, defense request to dismiss Flack's second-degree murder conviction, maybe even reducing it to manslaughter. Uh, here to kind of break it all down is our resident expert, Ms. Bruce Barquette of the Great Barquette Epstein, and of course you know him, Crime and Justice Radio, with a Ida uh, Leisering, one of the great shows right here on LA News Radio, Monday night, 627. Mr. Barquette traveling, and we appreciate uh, the call-in and some help here. Uh, good to have you, my friend, and this was... Uh, uh, this was kind of a no-nonsense uh, type judge in this case, in Judge Sturm, and really kind of handing it down yesterday. Good to have you here. Let's break this thing down. Good morning, Jay. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I happen to know Judge Sturm quite well. I've known him since he was a, a, a young prosecutor. And no-nonsense for sure, but very, very fair. Uh, he's somebody who's going to call balls and strikes as he sees them every time. Um, so, you know, he gave the motion uh, a good analysis. He read it. He, he allowed the defense attorney's time to file it. Didn't have to do that and rejected it. Um, we'll see what an appellate court does with this. Uh, as we talked about this case when it happened, this is a, a stabbing. Um, and whether or not the person in the course of a fight intended to kill somebody, uh, we have to wait and see. The, the signs from the juries, the juror, excuse me, the jury was really interesting when it was going on because they were told in jury instructions, don't consider the lesser accounts unless you've acquitted the defendant of the highest count of intentional murder. And the way that goes is you, you can consider intentional murder, you can consider uh, manslaughter in the first degree, manslaughter in the second degree, criminal negligence, homicide. And they're told, do not consider the lesser in co- counts unless you've acquitted of the higher counts. And the jury was getting readbacks on the instructions for the lesser account, lesser counts, which implied to everybody that they had acquitted of the higher counts because that was part of the instructions. And then when they came back and uh, convicted the defendant of murder, I can tell you this from talking to some of the players, Everybody was shocked in the courtroom. Nobody expected it. Um, but that's what happens when you when you kind of gamble with this. He turned down a plea to a manslaughter. Turned it down. Uh, so it's a it's a lesson for attorneys and for defendants that you're you're involved in something. Uh, you killed somebody and you get an offer for a lesser included offense. You got to think long and hard before you turn it down. His defense was he didn't do it. His defense was I didn't mean to kill him. So. We're talking with Bruce Barquette breaking down the sentencing of Tyler Flack. Got 25 years to life from the judge. How was Sturman the case? Um, Ed Sapone, or Sapone, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, he had argued yep, uh, He argued that Flack was uh, Bruce holding a knife when he threw the punches at C. Morris. Didn't intend to stab the 16-year-old. Told the jury that the evidence showed that Morris had suffered a single but fatal accidental and very tragic stab went right to the heart other injuries as well uh all in all but um flax lawyers had argued the court that he was overcharged over convicted they claimed i guess that prosecutors misled the jury about the number of times flack had stabbed the morris this became a focal point during this whole thing right it did. Well, that's one of the that's one of the key factors in whether or not somebody intentionally uh, 
killed an individual, which is if you stab somebody once, and, and it's not television, single stab wounds that result in death are, are relatively uncommon um, in criminal justice. It's, a lot, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people get stabbed. It happens you know, more often than we would want. But you can't kill somebody with a single stab wound unless it penetrates a vital organ um, like your heart. And that happens from time to time. We, uh, Aida and I actually have a case like that, uh, not on Long Island, but outside of the island, where there's a single stab wound, uh, hit the individual in the heart and, and killed them, another teenager. So it's a, this concept is something we're very familiar with. Everybody in the system is, really. Uh, the key to convicting someone, if you stab them once and you in the course of a fight, you can argue manslaughter, you can argue what you want. You stab somebody another time, you know, repeated stab wounds, two or more, you start, the jurors are going to start to think that you really did intend to do them no harm because the first stab wound didn't kill them. Uh, you kept stabbing them. So um, whether or not there was a second stab wound, uh, whether or not the individual swung the knife at, at uh, the victim more than once is something that prosecutors get to argue and the jury gets to decide. The defense is that there's not sufficient evidence to prove that. Well, that's up to the jury, and ultimately be up to a um, an appellate court to see whether or not it's against the weight of the evidence. No question about it. You know, still a weapon was out there. Flack should never have had the weapon. We know that. Well, it's, um, ahead, Judge Sturm said he said, "You, sir, you brought a knife to a fist fight, and that was a fatal, figuratively and literally, a fatal error." Um, by Mr. Flack. And then that's what it's what. Listen, I go back to that famous line in the Untouchables movie with Sean Connery. You know, you bring a knife, he brings a gun. You know, that type of thing. And that's what it was all about. Um, I guess the other thing was when this new defense team came in, Bruce, they had claimed that Sapone provided Flack with what they called, what was it called, ineffective counsel, that type of thing. And a lot of the prosecutors pushed back on the contention in the court papers that, you know, Sapone had a, a lot of juice defending Flack, you know, a lot of vigor, a lot of skill, that type of thing. Interesting how they tried to paint the picture. I can't even imagine Howard Sturm even, you know, saying, hey, what are we talking about here? I mean, I saw it happen right in front of my eyes. Sapone tried to do his job. That was a reach, no? Um, it, it was, but it's a, it's a common reach. And without knowing the specific details of this, uh, it's hard to know the merits of it. Look, every time an individual gets convicted of a, of a murder, one of the basic kind of bases that you have to look at to determine whether or not an individual um, – lawyer did a good job is you, you look at ineffective counsel it's it's fundamental it's kind of like you're, you're looking at a, you're looking at a conviction you're looking for an appeal you're going to look at how the attorney did now at Sapone is, is an excellent lawyer i know him. he's a very good lawyer he's got a great reputation i'm sure he was prepared and did a good job in, in kind of a broad sense but ineffective assistance of counsel involves this question whether or not the attorney did something or didn't do something that lacked any strategic um, basis. In other words, something that was just kind of outside the box, wildly different, and even a good lawyer can make those kinds of mistakes. Look, Derek Jeter is a great shortstop and a great Yankee. Every once in a while, he went 0 for 5. He didn't have a good game. 
So great lawyers can have bad days in court. They also can make fatal errors. Um, and that review um, is typical, and it's it, this happens in every one of these. Uh, the new attorney says the trial attorney was ineffective, and then the prosecutor, who fought bitterly with that attorney, and probably in the back room for cursing him out and you know talking about how awful he was, then writes papers about how brilliant the attorney was who lost the case. And that dynamic, I kind of chuckle at it because it goes on all the time. It's not that unusual at all. Whether or not the phone made a mistake. Yeah. In essence, you get an appeal going here. I don't imagine the appeal changing at all, Bruce. Uh, Do you? And uh, how many Uh, years? How many? Go ahead. Finish that. Go ahead. I'm I'm not so sure. This This really was a close call. Like I said, every I, I know this from just talking to the players. Everybody in the courtroom was stunned by the verdict. Uh, they, the prosecutors offered him a manslaughter plea to begin with. Uh, so the prosecutors at the outset recognized that intentional murder was a stretch, thought that a manslaughter conviction was would be just. It's only when the defendant turned that down and went to trial, which to me, that's the biggest question I have, is why would you turn that down? That's what you're going for anyway. That's what he's praying for now as a manslaughter conviction. Um, so whether or not an appellate court looks at this and looks at the decisions the attorney made, the advice he gave his client, and the juror's conduct in kind of ignoring those instructions, right, considering the lesser accounts before uh, they've acquitted them with the higher accounts, I think there's some good uh, grist, if you will, for an appeal. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it come back. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it affirmed. Well, it really is going to depend on the quality of this appellate term. Well, there you go. So Bruce actually might be thinking that way as far as a possibility. If the appeal is turned down, uh, as far as Flack is concerned, when would he see the light of day, Mr. Barquette? Well, the way the state system works currently, and this is always subject to change, is you have to serve your minimum sentence before you're eligible for parole. So we'll see Mr. Flack uh, up for parole, not released, but up for parole in 25 years, including the time he spent in the local local jail. So he's probably got, I don't know, a few months in. Um, so we'll see him in 24-plus years. Uh, he'll be up for parole. Um, maybe he'll be granted it, maybe he won't. Parole is so political and so uh, just unbelievably unpredictable, right? Back in the 90s when Pataki was in office, I can tell you that nobody got parole. Nobody. Ever. They, everybody got maxed out. You served your maximum sentence. Uh, now, uh, people are getting parole pretty regularly. It happens all the time. It's, it's you know, you, can, you, you see it, you complain about it, um, as do others. So what the political climate will be like, what the parole board will be like in 25 years is anybody's guess. Um, and whether or not Mr. Flack gets parole, we'll see. But 25 years is the next time he'll get to see the light of day if the appeal is denied. Two for the price of one. Bruce Barquet, Barquet, FCN, of course, Crime and Justice Radio, 6 to 7 on a Monday night. Uh, quickly to the Murdoch case. 13 witnesses, Bruce, couple of weeks. Murdoch's defense resting its case uh, in the double Myrtle trial. It's being watched around the globe at this point in time. Now you have individuals from the jury to go out to the home, the landscape of where Murdo uh, is at this point in time. 
Uh, is that something unusual, by the way, for that to happen? Highly unusual. Uh, it happens rarely. Rarely would uh, are jurors taking the crime scenes. Uh, I mean, I, 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 you can think of a. On one hand, you can count the number of cases where that's happened nationally in the last twenty years or so. So it is very unusual. It has to be a, an extraordinarily compelling reason to do it. Uh, that the jurors just can't fully comprehend the evidence without actually being there. And you think about all the technology we have now with 3D and, and, and renditions and photographs and videos and computers. I, I can't imagine that that can't be recreated as an exhibit for jurors where they can't get, get what they need in the courtroom. And think about the logistics of bringing an incarcerated defendant out because he's got to go. Um, I guess he doesn't have to. He can waive his right to go. But the the uh, bringing a defendant, a jurors, a bus, all the lawyers, a court reporter, people can't talk to each other. They can look around. Who's going to point things out to them? It really is highly unusual. Very unusual. A move of this nature, in my estimation, it, it favors Murdoch's team. It really does. Because, you know, the landscape and everything else, obviously... Uh, Murdoch found his wife, his son, dead on the property of the family's yeah. hunting lodge Tom. in June of 2021. Uh, and admitted he was close to the scene at the time of the killing. Insists, though, he is not responsible. For the jurors to actually see that up front. Incredible. Really is. Um, yeah, found found him, found him or or deposited him there, right? I mean, it's, that's kind of up for, up for debate. Murdoch would love for the jury to say that he found them there. Um, I'm not. I'm not so sure that's that's you know that's the fact. We'll we'll have to wait and see what the jury says. And of course, I wasn't there. I don't know. But um, I, it favors the defense only because the defense asked for it. So they're the ones who requested it, and the judge said, "Okay, we'll do it." Um, I, I, I you don't know exactly what the defense is hoping to argue from that because I'm sure they haven't said it explicitly. Um, and we'll we'll see. Like I said, it's highly unusual. Um, it favors the defense because they asked for it, so they obviously want it to happen. Um, I think the biggest thing that he has going for him is the, the really the lack of motive um, that the prosecutor has. I, I don't know exactly what they're going to argue in summation. Maybe they have something in the course of the trial. Uh, I think Aida suggested that um, the motive could be that he was looking to distract from uh, his financial uh, crimes that the trial concerning his son and the boating accident was going to start in a few days. <clears throat> Maybe he thought that if his, you know, two family members were killed uh, and if Paul, the trial wouldn't go forward and that that would reduce the chances that he, there'd be a judgment against his son or him and reduce the chances that his financial crimes would be exposed. And maybe that was the motive. I, I don't know. But to me, that is the, biggest weakness in the prosecutor's case. The timeline fits. There's no other suspects. Uh, he lied about some significant things, only kind of admitted the lies when he, he, he was caught in them. His voice was on the, on the recording. He had no choice to admit it. Uh, there was gun residue on the jacket. There's so many things that he can't explain. So that, uh, the lack of motive and the two guns, the fact that it was two different guns used to kill the two individuals, there is something to be said for uh, that indicates that there were two people there. And the fact that the weapons weren't found 
also indicates that whoever did it took the weapons with them, and you know they're nowhere to be found. So we'll see how it how it unplays. It's really going to be fascinating. I thought it was a deflection as far as all the financial mess that he got himself in. Uh, but the interesting, you know, it's all all about reasonable doubt. All you need is that one juror, you know. And I think, uh, you know, listen, uh, maybe two killers, that's the scenario. Defense calling a witness who argued the scenario likely equal to two killers, not one in, in their attempt to at least exculpate murder, who broke down deep sobs, emotions, multiple times through the trial. Fascinating. Fascinating how this could turn out. Uh, and we await. The world awaits. Uh, so uh, we shall see. Uh, Bruce, a pleasure. Uh, and we thank you uh, on the move uh, from a business standpoint to finding the time to call in. We can't thank you enough. No problem. Anytime for you, Jay. We'll talk to you next Monday. Take care.